Our sermon passage this morning is from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated, friends. Would you please pray with me? Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning desperately aware of our own inadequacies. We can do nothing to bring your word to life. No preacher can empower your word. No hearer can discover divine insights. Apart from the acting of your Holy Spirit this morning, this is a fruitless exercise. And so we ask that you would do what only you can do and that you would come and speak to us. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. On the spring break of my senior year of high school, I met the most blasphemous man I've ever known. I was in a small town in northeastern Washington. We were there on on a youth group mission trip of sorts for spring break, and we were going door to door, raising food for a canned food drive. His name was Joe. I don't remember as much about Joe as I wish that I did, but what I do remember is that he was a veteran. World War II, I think, but it might have been Korea, and Tori seems to remember it was Vietnam. He shuffled when he walked, maybe even used a cane. He had diabetes, really bad eyesight. He had to use a a lighted magnifying glass just to read his mail. He was so afraid that he would poison himself with something that he cooked because he couldn't see his food well enough to know if it was safe to eat or not. But I remember most clearly about Joe was that he was a widower deeply, deeply angry and bitter over the loss of his wife. When we asked him what he thought about God, he became choked up. And standing there on his front porch, just half of his body out of the door, he explained that he could not understand how God could take his wife from him. She had been healthy, she had done nothing wrong, but she was gone and he was still here. Waving his finger at the sky, choking to get the words out, he exclaimed, that, that, that turkey. Spat with all the vitriol and poison that is only native to a tongue that knows deep wounds. 
Joe had a clear expectation for his life. His wife would outlive him. There was no question about it. His expectation was not met. We have expectations for our lives. We get in our car and we, we turn the key. We expect it to start. The people in our text today had clear expectations of Christ. And what we will see from our passage this morning is that God subverts our expectations to surpass our expectations. God subverts our expectations to surpass our expectations. And we see this in two parts. First, expectations subverted. It's the first part most of verse 32. And second, expectations surpassed the rest of our passage. So let's begin at the beginning of our passage. Expectations subverted. Verse 32. And they were on the road. Right, we're going to stop here, gather our bearings. Who? What road? Where? What's going on? Who was on the road? Jesus and his followers. Now, this is the disciples to be sure, but since Mark makes a point of singling out the 12 later on in this same verse, it's apparent that more than just the 12 are here. And contextually, if we think about where we are in Mark, that's appropriate. Only a few scenes ago in Mark's gospel, mothers were bringing their infants to Jesus. Immediately preceding this, we had the rich young man who came up to Jesus and left sorrowfully. And so my point is that this is not just a static group. People are coming up to him. Some people are leaving, not liking what they hear. Some people are sticking around and walking with them. And where are they going? Well, the text tells us. Going up to Jerusalem. Most likely, this scene plays out as they're approaching Jericho where they would probably stay at least for the night. Because when they reached Jericho, they would be one very, very hard day's journey from Jerusalem. And since that final push would result in an, of an elevation gain of almost 3,500 feet, we're talking more than half a mile, Mark records in the common tongue of the day that they were going up to Jerusalem. Our text continues, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Now, this is without a doubt the most confusing part of our passage this morning. These 17 words, though, are the key to understanding what is really going on here. Mark provides in his curt and to-the-point way amazing, colorful insight. First, he paints a picture for us, not of crowds swarming around Jesus like we've seen previously. They aren't pressing in on him from all sides. No, instead, Christ is walking ahead of them as a leader. And so everyone around them is amazed. And the people who are following Jesus are afraid. And we naturally ask, why? What is amazing about Jesus walking out front? What causes fear? You must remember, friends, Jesus is the Messiah. And these people knew that. I mean, this is a group of Jewish men and women. They knew that Jesus was the long-promised deliverer. This is what they've been waiting for for generations. So all of those who saw him walking towards Jerusalem for what had to be the final showdown were amazed. Not because he claimed to be the Messiah. Other people had done that. 
But he clearly was the Messiah regardless of any claims that he made. He exuded Messiahness. That's part of why they were amazed. And part of why those who followed him were afraid. This is not some once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is a once-in-history occurrence. From Genesis 3.15, literally everything has been building and building, and surely now is the time. This is the journey to Jerusalem that they are making. But it doesn't look like what they thought it would look like, which is the other part of the fear and amazement. Because Jesus looks much more like a shepherd leading a flock than a general marching at the head of a mighty army. Which if you're expecting a violent overthrow of the Roman government, and they were, would have been amazing to onlookers and terrifying to those following him. You can imagine what they would say. How are they going to overthrow the Romans? They don't have enough people or arms. How are we going to make it out of this alive? We don't have any armor or shields or javelins or nearly enough swords. They had expectations of what Jesus would do and what he would look like doing it and how he would do it. And they were all wrong. And if you're following Jesus, this can and does lead to fear. Dear friends, have you experienced this? Let me be clear. Expectations are not wrong. They are the natural outcome of our God-given gift of reasoning. And more often than not, it's how God leads us. We use the knowledge and the wisdom and the decision-making capacities he has given us. And we make the best choices that we can. And normally this passes without any notice because things go as we expect. It is the subverted expectations that stand out. To be sure, they are a tiny percentage of everything that happens to us. But they can have a profound impact on us. They can shape you, your actions, reactions, and interactions for years. I'm not talking about expectations that are small and inconsequential. I'm talking about the expectation that your child would be healthy. The expectation that you can even have children. The expectation that you'll find a spouse or gainful employment or that a doctor won't deliver devastating news at a routine checkup. The expectation that your close friend or family member or spouse or pastor will care for you and love you when these expectations look like they might be subverted, do you not fear, friends? Because that's the stakes we're dealing with. Life-altering. Can you empathize with these people? It is so easy to look down on them when we read the text. But we are much more like them than we want to admit. What could we say in protest? No, you don't understand, but what I want is good. What I want glorifies God. My expectations are that God would glorify himself in my life by giving me what I want. What they wanted was good. They wanted God to bring about his kingdom and to participate in it. Would we say, but, but how could they fear? I mean, really, Riker, how could they fear? They had Jesus there with them, right? God was walking with them. Oh, dear friends, do you ever fear? and yet the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, God himself actually lives in you, empowering you. 
Do you ever doubt that everything that happens, even things dark and terrible, ultimately and finally God uses for his glory and for your good? My dear brothers and sisters, if you have ever mourned a future that you were certain of, then you understand the fear that these people have as their expectations are subverted. Praise be to God, that is not the end of our passage. God subverts our expectations to surpass our expectations. So now second, expectations surpassed. The rest of our passage. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Now here Jesus pulls aside just the 12 to speak to them. And it reminds us of the special access that they had to Christ. What a particular privilege that must have been. And what a specific burden. You have to imagine that the other people traveling with them, those who were afraid, those, some of who have been traveling with them for a long time, have at least gotten to know the disciples, probably befriended them. Remember, these are real men. And you can imagine the questions. I mean, wouldn't you ask questions? So, uh, Thomas, you know, this whole thing's going to play out. I mean, are there people waiting for us in Jerusalem with extra swords? Andrew, Andrew, do you know when we're going to get to Jerusalem? Jesus has a plan for everything, right? Hey, John, when Jesus pulled you guys aside earlier, what, what, what did he tell you? What did he tell them? Verse 33 tells us, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. This is literally the exact opposite of every single hope and expectation that they have. Jesus is not going to rally the troops in Jerusalem. The Jewish people will not form an army around him. He will be betrayed and then delivered over to the Jewish leaders. And these leaders won't enthrone him as king, throw every ounce of their religious, political, and social clout behind him. They won't draw and, dry, draw and dry, draw people to Jesus and follow him into battle with the Romans. No, they will unjustly judge him guilty. They will sentence him to death. They will hand him over to Rome. How could this be any worse news? I mean, if you gave up everything you had to follow Jesus because you were certain that he was going to restore Israel and rule as the king, what could be worse? It says something profound about who they knew Jesus to be that they didn't just leave, honestly. It is what so many people do when they come to Jesus for something whether it's the promise of money, earthly comfort, esteem, a spouse, a happy family, an easy life, or the overthrow of an oppressive government, when expectations are subverted, often people walk away. Beloved of God, may you be counted as the disciples. Because even in this, though they do not realize it, Jesus is actually surpassing their expectations. And he continues here in verse 34. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. The Romans, 
who should be dead at the end of our sword, or at the very least on their knees begging for mercy before we slaughter them in judgment for oppressing God's people, will instead ridicule and assault our Messiah? God's anointed one will be so dishonored by these unclean Gentiles. And what's more, they will kill him? God would allow the enemy of his people to kill the Christ. Yes, of course, because God is surpassing their expectations. This Messiah, the one that they want to follow into battle, he is God himself. God himself will be mocked to his face. The water that he created from nothing would be gathered in their Gentile mouths and spat upon him. The muscles that he formed as they grew in their mother's wombs would draw back the whip made from an animal that he created. And all of it would be used to inflict pain upon the source of all comfort. The sustainer of all life. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who gave these Romans their very life and breath and even sustained them in these actions would see them use their gifts to kill him. And he surpasses their expectations further. The last part of our text. And after three days, he will rise. And here is where they fell short, friends. Rome is not the enemy. It is not enough for God to overthrow Rome or Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or to destroy the whole world save one holy family in a flood. Jesus must die the sacrificial death. It is the only way to the victory that God aims at. This is the Messiah. This is the all-powerful king. This is God himself. And the enemy is the serpent and death itself. The disciples were so focused on the prophecies of the conquering king that they missed that the whole point was to crush the head of the serpent. That was the goal all along. And this is much greater and much more earth-shattering and history-making than they could ever expect. Yes, the Messiah has died. He is the Passover lamb. His blood, the propitiation for our sins. Yet death cannot hold him. It does not rule over him. He takes his life back up and once and for all time defeats our true enemy. His heel is bruised, but the head of the serpent has been finally crushed. Oh, how their expectations were surpassed. How myopic their good but misguided aims look in comparison. They wanted to be free from the oppression of the Romans, but God freed them from the shackles of sin and death. He frees all who would believe upon Christ. The difficulty for us, friends, in applying this is that this grandness cannot be repeated we cannot miss anything by this much because nothing this history alting will ever happen again. But we can and we do make the same mistakes the followers of Jesus made. I asked you earlier if you could relate to the followers, if you had ever had expectations subverted. 
Perhaps now even some of you are living in a state of subverted expectations. Dear friends, I do not know how, but you must know and you must believe that God will surpass those expectations. Perhaps in a way that is grander and more full than than you or I could ever have imagined. Perhaps in a way that shows those expectations as being short-sighted. Whatever the case is, it will be better for you and more glorifying to God than you could have ever hoped or dreamed. And I know that that is hard to hear. I know that it can be impossibly hard to hear that, but I promise you this is not out of coldness or indifference to your suffering. I know that there are people here this morning who have been deeply hurt from specific times where expectations of love or care or safety or honesty were not met by people that you trusted. And I also know that everyone in the room feels like I was just talking about them. Because I live in the fallen world that you do. No one in this room is immune to this. Some people may hide it better. No one is immune. The hope, the real, true, intangible hope in all of this is that the greatest pain and suffering was borne by Christ according to his expectations. He knew exactly what would happen to him and he walked towards Jerusalem to die the death that we deserve. He tells you to die to yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow him because the greatest suffering, death, leads to the greatest joy, resurrection. The only path to resurrection is through death. And that is true of our expectations as well. In the midst of crumbling expectations, that can seem impossible to understand. But you don't need to understand it, beloved. You don't need to understand it. You only need to follow Jesus. Your shepherd walks ahead of you. In all suffering, he precedes you. He is your comfort through suffering and he is your hope at the end of suffering. Would we be a people who trust God to surpass our subverted expectations? Here at St. Andrew's, As the church of Christ, would we comfort those who suffer with subverted expectations? Dear brothers and sisters, would we never hide when God subverts our expectations? Instead, would we disclose it to one another so that we can comfort one another and so that we can rejoice when God acts and surpasses our expectations? Would you please pray with me? Our God and Father, comforter of those who mourn, source of all rejoicing, you who alone are eternally good and eternally powerful, would you please comfort those who fear or mourn over subverted expectations? Please use us as a church to care for them. Build us up in the surety that all that passes is for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.